Hello, friends. Hey, a few weeks ago, I had a wonderful conversation with Rajat Diman when he interviewed me for his show in India. And since I'm away from the studio this week, I thought you'd enjoy hearing what we covered. So here we go. Welcome to Biblical Demand, and today our guest is Greg Cockle, who is the founder and president of Stand to Reason. He is a professor in Christian apologetics at Biola University. He has debated Michael Shermer and Deepak Chopra. Also, as an author, he has written seven books, including The Story of Reality, How the World Began, Tactics, A Game Plan for Discussing Your Christian Convictions, and others. It's a joy to have you here, sir. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our conversation, Rajat. Great. So let's begin with your story. Tell us about yourself and how did you come to know Jesus? Well, I was raised um, in a nominal Christian home. Uh, I was Roman Catholic, and so we went to church on Sundays and uh, did oh, some Catholic school and did all the things that were required of Catholicism. Uh, but when I became a teenager, I asked, I was asked a very important question. And that question was, do you really believe that your faith is true? And that stopped me in my tracks. I had to think about that. And I said, no, <laughs> I don't. And I realized I had been doing what my family had been doing all my life. And I had even been arguing in favor of Roman Catholicism as a type of Christianity. But when I really thought about it, I was just doing what my parents had taught me to do. And my culture had taught me to do. I wasn't thinking for myself. And when I realized uh, this question, um, then I realized I hadn't, I didn't really believe it. And I said, no, it was a, so such amazing um, revelation to me. No, I guess I really don't believe that stuff. And so then I embarked on a on a very worldly course. And I was a young man that time. I was a teenager. A lot of things happening in the States in a counterculture. A lot of values were being changed. And to be honest, I did not want God in my life telling me how to live my life. All right. And so I went uh, probably, let's see, about six years. Um, embracing the world, living like the world, um, accepting the ideas of the culture that were developing then. And, um, and, and, and I, that didn't involve God, you know, and especially when you're a young man <clears throat> discovering your world, uh, the last thing you're interested in is religion and purity and holiness and right living and all that. You know, the girls were there, you know, kind of thing. And so uh, that was a big distraction for me. And uh, it turned out that my younger brother had become a Christian. Now, when I say become a Christian, uh, what I mean is this. Um, there is a difference between doing religious things and having a deep belief and conviction in in the thing you're doing. And I just described that on my own life. I was doing the religious things, but I it turned out I didn't really believe it. And as an adult, I was making now my decisions for myself. That happened with everybody in our family. Every single person, five children, mom and dad, seven of us all rejected the religion that we were raised with. Okay, we were done with it. It was inconvenient. And we weren't convinced it was true. 
And it turned out, though, that my younger brother, Mark, he was just two years younger than me, uh, ended up becoming a Christian. <laughs> that is, somebody who really trusted in Jesus for forgiveness and had his life changed because of the Holy Spirit coming to live within him. And not, and, and when I say trusting for forgiveness, this is not something I understood before, even though I was in a Christian denomination. And frankly, a lot of Christians in various denominations do not understand this. All right. Um, what God offers every human being is forgiveness for every sin they have ever committed in their entire life and also the sins they will commit. It's all cleaned. Now, some people might think, well, that means I can go on sinning. I said, if you think that way, then you haven't been converted because converted means you have the Holy Spirit, okay? And you want to do what God wants you to do. So your desires change too. So what I'm saying here is something in a certain sense on the outside is changed. I realize that God forgives me of everything. And so I know that I'm going to heaven, not because I'm good and holy and all that, but because of what Jesus did for me, complete forgiveness. But on the inside, there's a change. Now God is my father and I am his son in a way that wasn't the case before. And now that I'm part of his family, I want to please my heavenly father and the Holy Spirit within me helps me to desire that and to do that. Okay, so this is important, um, not just in India, speaking to my Indian friends now through you, but even in the United States, where Christianity abounds, that doesn't mean that they all understand it. it they're confused. And so what happened to my brother is he realized that there was real grace and forgiveness available, not just once a week when you go to the confessional with the priest and you say your sins and he says, okay, I forgive you. And then the next 10 minutes later, you're looking at a girl and you realize, oh, now, I, now I'm a mess again. All right. Um, it was real deep forgiveness. And so this was the message he began to communicate to me that I had never heard before. And over a period of time, even though I pushed back initially, and I was the only, only member of my family to go to college or to graduate from college. And, um, and so I thought I was too smart to believe that stuff. Okay, uh, but um, my brother just continued to communicate this true message of the grace of God and forgiveness and the transformation of life I could have. And then in September of 1973, I was 23 years old. I was a student at UCLA at the time, and that's when I <clears throat> gave my life to Christ. And I decided to follow Jesus. No, I'm just making another distinction here. A lot of Christians will say, I received Christ, or I, you know, prayed a prayer. Well, there's nothing wrong with the language. As long as people understand that when you receive Jesus, or you pray a prayer to say, God, forgive me, I'm putting my trust in Jesus, or something like that, that that's a door to a new world. 
that isn't the new world. That is the door to the new world. And what I mean by that is that sometimes people will pray this prayer and then they will walk away. Think, okay, now I have what some might call an insurance policy, you know. Okay, God, now I have your insurance policy. Leave me alone. Okay. A person like that is not a real Christian. They may think they are, but they're not because they haven't been converted. And so I like to talk about when I put my trust in Christ, I began to follow Jesus because a Christian is a follower of Jesus. And I think in, in the Indian tradition, you have very good examples of that. Uh, with swamis and, and uh, avatars, uh, types of individuals, and the people who identify themselves with that and follow along with them. Well, in a, in a, in a sense, it's the same kind of thing with Christianity. If we are not following Jesus, then how could we say we're a Christian? How could we say that our life has been transformed? All right. So I'm just making this clear because I think it's sometimes under, misunderstood. We are not adding Jesus to all the other gods. We are acknowledging that the other gods are false gods. Even the gods that I followed when I was a young man, sex and um, and freedom and doing whatever I wanted to do and all this other stuff. I had different gods. I don't add Jesus to that. Jesus replaces that because Jesus is the true God. Okay. Now, when I did that in 1973 and I began to follow Jesus, my life completely changed. Obviously, I'm seeing the world differently. And, uh, then I, uh, I be- became a part of a, a Christian community where I was taught the Bible and I was discipled. Um, in other words, there was a, an older Christian man who, who took me under his wings, so to speak. That, um, and incidentally, if I use what sounds like an American statement, like I'll take them under the wing or something, sometimes they don't translate, they don't make any sense in another culture. Let me know and I'll try to word that. So I might use a baseball illustration, you know, you know, swinging for the fences. What does that mean? Oh, let me put it in other words. But in any way, uh, uh, he had, he had taken me in as a, as a son. And for two and a half years, I was trained by him and other teachers. So this really helped my spiritual growth and helped me to realize what my life was all about. And that was that whether I earned a living at serving Christ, like I do now, or not, like I did for the first 20 years of my Christian life, I'm still to serve him and to use my gifts, spread the gospel, strengthen other Christians. Doesn't matter that I get paid for it. It turns out now it's my full-time job. But for the first 20 years of my Christian life, it wasn't really. Or the first, I should say, maybe the first 15 years of my Christian life. Um, And so uh, it was a way of life for me. And that's the way it should be for anyone who has become a real Christian as yourself. And uh, I think you're still probably... I know, don't know much about you, Rajat, but uh, as a even as a layperson, if you're making your living some other way, you're probably not getting rich on the internet right now, uh, doing podcasts. But um, you are still serving Christ with your life. 
you know, uh, even though you, you, you're not, you're not getting paid for it. Uh, and part of the reason I say this is because, uh, I have been told <clears throat> that the most well-known Christian, uh, name in India is Benny Hinn. And so there are people, <clears throat> excuse me, who are representing Christianity falsely. And Benny Hinn is one of them. <clears throat> and he's teaching that um, <clears throat> becoming a Christian is a way to get rich, like him. Well, he got rich because he fooled a lot of people. and uh, But he's not a real Christian. Um, and that isn't what Christianity is all about. You cannot read the New Testament, especially the life of Jesus, and come to that conclusion. It's about something entirely different. Um, it's not about about making a lot of money and getting famous. It's about humbling ourselves and uh, and following Jesus by serving Him and others. So, in in different ways, this is what I've been doing for forty eight years now, and um, it has not been easy. Jesus promised it would not be easy, and I live in America. If you live in a different culture with a different religion that is most popular, um, it's even more difficult, like in your country, where you have Islam and Hinduism and maybe a little Buddhism and, and others, uh, um, uh, um, other religious orders, but they are, are, are contrary, different from, and opposing Christianity and their theology, and sometimes the people do as well. And this is why it's so much more important for Christians in a country like that, which, by the way, the United States is becoming more like opposition. Um, but it's so important to understand that we are following the person of Jesus and walking in his footsteps in obedience as we put our trust in him. It's not a matter of whether we're going to be forgiven or we're not trying to earn our way to heaven. We're trying to be faithful children because we have been given heaven already. Wonderful. So that's a little bit of my story. Great. Kate. That's so wonderful to hear that uh, being born in a Catholic family or being born in a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. That's right. Right. So uh, it's so great to hear that how God used other people, your brother and your teachers to uh, to develop, uh, to strengthen those convictions and to shape your Christian worldview. And now you've been serving right. Christ from past 48 years. It's yeah. so wonderful. It's so inspiring to hear that. Yeah. Praise you. God for that. So moving on to this next question. Um, uh, I watched your debate with uh, Deepak Chopra back in 2005, right? right. And uh, you emphasize that the faith should be supported with reasons and evidence. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the question is why not on personal experiences, feelings, emotions, or insights, for example, uh, during summers, uh, I'm in a scorching heat and I'm sweating and I see a dense tree in a distance. Right. I run towards that and I find a very good rest there and my body's relaxed. My sweat is gone and I'm refreshed. Mm -hmm. Now, because of that experience I'm having, I'm in awe of that tree that I would like to show my gratitude to that tree by worshiping it. Right. right? So what's wrong with that? Well, there is a lot in this question, Rajan, it's, and I can understand why this kind of question would be more meaningful in India than it is in the United States. 
although there are a lot of people that have the same general idea in the United States, but they wouldn't talk about worshiping a tree. All right. That doesn't make any sense to them. Okay. Um, th- but they will end up worshiping something else that gives them what they want. Okay. Now let me pause for a moment because I chose my words very carefully. They're going to give, they're going to worship something else that gives them what they want. Okay. Now let's go back to your illustration. <clears throat> I understand the circumstances you just described. Somebody's, you know, hot, sweaty, uncomfortable. There's shade over there given by the tree. And when they go under the shade, they are comforted. All right. They feel better. Um, they, uh, they are refreshed and they are thankful. But to what are they thankful? Well, they're thankful to the tree. And because they're thankful to the tree, they want to worship the tree. Okay. Now I want to think, I want you to think about this for a moment and also those that are listening. If I, if you wanted to write an important letter, very important to your wife or to your children or to a friend or a government official, something important, but you had no pen. And I gave you a pen that allowed you to write whatever it is you want to write and accomplish that important goal in your life. Would you, okay, one question at a time here, very simply, would you be thankful? Rajat, if I gave you the pen to do the job, you would be thankful. True. True. Okay, good. Here's the key question. To whom or what would you be thankful? Uh, because I gave you the pen. Yeah, yeah. You took the pen and write it down. Uh, because I needed it most at that time. That's why you would be thankful. But who would you thank? What would, would you think? I would thank you who gave me the pen. Why would you give? Why would you thank me? I did not write the thing. You wrote it with the pen. Why don't you thank the pen? And the answer is, well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would I thank the pen? The pen didn't do anything. I did something with the pen that pen given to me by another person. All right. So I just, I'm just thinking about gratitude now and being thankful. All right. When you think about it in our normal life, when we're thankful, we are thankful to people or two persons who do something for us. All right. Even if I say I'm thankful that, that I have a house. Well, that doesn't make any sense by itself because thank, thankfulness is always between persons. So there's something else that's responsible for the house or my ability to purchase a house that I'm thankful to. And so we have a Thanksgiving day every year in the States. Maybe you have something like that. I don't know. In, in other cultures have something similar. But in this case, we are, we are being thankful. And I talked about this on my own radio show. 
I said, you, you can't just be thankful and that's it. You are always thankful for something, like a pen, and to someone for providing the thing you're thankful for. Thanks is always given to someone. That's what makes sense. And this is one reason when I was talking with, uh, I was thinking about something the atheist Michael Shermer said. At Thanksgiving, he said, I'm just thankful. I'm not thankful to anybody, like to God. I don't believe in God. Well, then your thanks doesn't make any sense because thanks doesn't just exist by itself. It's like between people. So what I gave a very clear illustration, since I give you the pen, you're thankful for the pen, but you are thankful to me who provided the pen. All right. Now let's go back to the tree. What did the tree provide? Shade and comfort. But the tree, the, the, the tree didn't give that to you. It's just what was there because the tree was there. All right. You are thankful for the shade and the comfort. But the thankfulness is not to the tree because the tree didn't do anything more than the pen does when you use it to write. The shade was always there. And by the way, why thank the tree instead of the shade? Or forget about the tree and the shade. What really mattered is that it was cool. Why not worship the coolness? Well, you might say, well, the coolness is there because of the tree. Yes, but the tree is there because of something else. Just like the pen. You might say, I'm not going to thank the ink, but I'm not going to thank the pen. I'm going to thank the one who gave it. And so this is why in the Bible talks about this. When we see the things in the world that bring benefit to us, we do not thank the thing. We thank the one who gave the thing. All right. And who gave us the tree, who gave us the world to enjoy God. A person made those things, and this is why we can be thankful to them, okay? So I'm just focusing right now. I I have more to say, and I don't know if you want to jump in on this, but I have more to say about this because now I'm just talking about the, the gratitude or thankfulness. I haven't talked about the worship part or the experience part, and these are three different things. So on the one hand, it seems odd to thank a thing. That just seems odd. It seems more proper to thank the one who gave you the thing. And if you feel thankful for a tree, there must be somebody who gave you the tree that you can thank. Okay, so that seems to me common sense, just thinking about it, all right? Um, the second thing is um, that the, the in your question, you said not just be thankful or thank, but to worship. All right. Now, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, one of the prophets is talking about that very thing. And he's talking about worshiping trees. In this case, a piece of a tree. And he says, he says, look, think about it. He says to the people, you have a tree and then you cut the tree down. And you take parts of that tree and you burn it in a fire to cook your food, keep you warm. You take another part of the same tree 
and you carve something into it, and then you set it up and you bow down and worship it. This thing that you just made has eyes, but it can't see. It has ears, but it can't hear. It has a mouth. You carved it in there, but the mouth can't speak. And and then he, you know, then he's poking fun at the people who do this. And he says, and those who do this are like them. <laughs> they have eyes, but they're not seeing. They have ears, but they're not hearing. They have mouths, they're not speaking. In other words, they're, they're, they are deaf and dumb and blind to the truth of what they're doing. They're just taking a hunk of wood and pretending it's a god. And they pretend it's a god because it did something for them. It gave them shade, made a fire. But the point of the prophet is that this is just a thing. Worship is for someone greater than yourself and greater than everything else. It is not for something that simply gives you pleasure. Oh, the tree gave me pleasure. I'm going to worship this. All right. So I'm going to give another illustration so people can see the point. Because I think to many who are listening, this illustration you offer with the tree makes sense. But I'm going to apply the same rule to something else. All right. Um, and it's going to be a little extreme, but but I think you'll see the parallel. Because remember, the rule that we're using in this case is, this brought me pleasure, so I am going to be thankful for it and worship it. Okay, take a prostitute. A man goes to a prostitute. All right? Well, most people don't think very highly of prostitutes because they sell their body in a way that most people think they shouldn't, even when they go to a prostitute themselves. They realize, I'm not going to tell anybody, I don't want anybody to find out, because they realize it's not really good. But the prostitute gives them pleasure. I suspect the prostitute can give more pleasure than a tra- than a shady tree. Would they worship the prostitute? That makes no sense. The same pleasure is there, but you realize, no, I'm going to, a prostitute, no, I'm not going to worship a prostitute. Because a prostitute isn't worthy of worship. The thing that's worthy of worship is not something that just gives us pleasure, but something that's huge, big, grand, and wonderful, and morally pure. This is why Christians worship God, because he's the greatest being. He's he's above all. It's not a bunch of gods, and it's just, okay, they're all kind of equals fighting with each other. No, he's above all, and he's morally pure. He isn't having sex himself with prostitutes, you know. And some of gods in a in in a god system, a polytheistic system, they do nasty things, you know. So, so why would you worship something that's nasty? Oh, I know why you'd want to do that because you're trying to trick it so it does what you want it to do. Okay. You you do you do incense and you do things like that, not because you really admire it, but because you're trying to manipulate it. All right. So uh, I'm just trying to observe what's actually going on here and to get your listeners to think about this. You know, when you give gratitude, you give gratitude to to a person for something. You don't give gratitude to the thing. Okay. And you don't worship the thing. If you're worshiping the thing that gives pleasure, then there are all kinds of 
really strange things you should be worshiping. You should be worshiping your, your, you know, tandoori chicken or whatever, you know, you might have if you like the taste of that. You should be worshiping the prostitute. You should be, every, you should be worshiping everything that gets pleasure. And then what happens is now you're worshiping pleasure. By the way, you know, uh, there are people in the world that get pleasure from tormenting other human beings. They do. Now, we think it's strange, but if we're worshiping pleasure, then why wouldn't we worship those people who did that? Why wouldn't we we worship um, uh, people who torture? Well, everybody realizes that that doesn't seem right. But it is, it does follow the rule that you described with the tree. Now, the tree seems, oh, that's so sweet. I just go under the tree. I feel, oh, I think I'm going to worship the tree. Okay, but if that's the rule, the basic reason you worship the tree is because you got some pleasure from something about the tree, then that should apply to a bunch of other things, too. And it starts to to, to look a little crazy. What I'm suggesting is that your feeling of being thankful for the shade is a good thing. And you ought to thank for the for the good thing. But you don't thank the thing. You don't thank the tree. You don't thank the shade. You don't thank the pleasure. You thank the one who made it possible. And this actually, in my view, is an argument for God. Because when we think about gratitude and what it is, it requires a person to whom we're thankful, or it doesn't make any sense. And if we're thankful for a lot of things in the natural world, there must be a person who placed those things there. And there was a person who, there is a person who placed those things there. And that's God. So now I've talked about gratitude and I've talked about worship, but I want to say something about experience because, um, what you had asked me about it with Deepak Chopra and I, I suspect Many people in India know who Deepak Chopra is. Um, he is a very, 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 very rich. Um, well, it's hard to describe his religion, but it's similar to Hinduism. It trades a lot on Hinduism, but I don't know if it's strictly Hinduism. <clears throat> in any event, um, <clears throat> uh, what I, what I, uh, said in my debate with him as I talked about the importance of reason and Evidence as opposed to experience. <clears throat> That's the first thing you asked me in my question. Okay. I think experience is really important and is really valuable. All right. Experience being what we, what we, um, I'm trying to think of another word for experience. I can't think of one. So what we experience and, and, and that's something that's in, often enjoyable. Sometimes it's not enjoyable, our experiences, but whatever the, the experience is supposed to tell us the truth. All right. Now, I think that when your viewers think about this, they realize it's obvious that experience doesn't always tell them the truth. It's just absolutely obvious. All right. And let's just go back to sexual illustration, um, not to be, you know, um, rude here, but to, but I think it's a very powerful illustration. Um, <clears throat> um, men especially have very strong sexual desires, even for people they're not married to. It's not surprising. 
okay, their desire is for someone that they have promised not uh, to go to. They promised their wife, okay? But their feelings, their feelings are driving them towards that other woman, okay? Well, if feelings are what are most important, then you go and have this thing with this other woman. But what ends up happening? Lots of times, this is very destructive. <clears throat> it's destructive in the person's individual life, in his marriage. It's destructive for his children. Wow, wait a minute. I, I thought that feelings were supposed to be your guide to truth. Then why does following our feelings lots of times lead to disaster? And the answer is because feelings are not an adequate guide to truth. All right. Another illustration. You look at these berries, these berries in the field. Oh, they look so good. They're full and red and luscious and juicy. They look great for food. Okay. So you take this thing and you put it in your mouth and you say, wow, it tastes great. So their eyes are satisfied. Your mouth is satisfied. You swallow it. And in a half hour, you're dead. Because the juicy, tasty berries were poison. Okay, so there's another example where you can't just follow your feelings because feelings don't always tell you what's good or true. All right, they mislead. <clears throat> so this is the way I like to put it. Feelings do make life delicious. And the feelings experienced in the right circumstances... So if I were to make love to my wife and enjoy that, then that's a right circumstance, and that's a wonderful thing. It's delicious, all right? If I did it with another woman, it may feel good, but it's not a right thing. And later on, it turns bitter, right? So feelings do make life delicious, and I think God intended that to be the case, which is why he gave us so many feelings and tastes and wonderful things to enjoy. Thank you, God, for that. I don't thank the thing. I thank God. All right. Um, however, thinking, reason, makes life safe. Feelings make life delicious. Reason makes life safe. Where do we get reason? From God. We got feelings from God. We got reason from God. We got feelings so we can enjoy things. Thank you, God. We got reason from God so that we can figure out which things that we might enjoy are good and which things are not good. And therefore, using reason, we keep safe. Okay. Now I've used illustrations that just have to do with, just have to do with, uh, kind of worldly things, earthly things. But the fact is, um, when it comes to spiritual things, these are so much more important. Same rules apply, but the spiritual things are so much more important. So how do I know God? Or even if there is a God, do I go by my feelings? Well, there is a place for feelings, but they're not a reliable God because I'm sorry, guide and not a reliable guide. Because if you believe in God and then somebody close to you dies, you feel bad and then say there is no God. Well, 
think about this. It ought to be obvious that if God actually exists, he doesn't disappear when you get sad. Or someone close to you dies. Guess what? Everyone close to you is going to die. Because everybody's going to die. So, so when you think about this, this isn't a good reason to get rid of God, but it's an emotional reason if people are following their emotions. Okay. And so basically, broadly, what I'm suggesting here with regards to experience is even though experience is important and gives us good things and even yours and my experience with God is a good thing to talk about with people. We've been doing that already. Paul the Apostle in the book of Acts, which is a, an account of the early church. Um, he talks about his conversion and his experience, but he bases all of his experience on truth. And he reasons for the truth to explain why his experience is a truthful experience, a good experience and not a deceptive or bad experience. So that's how uh, I would answer this question, which I deeply respect. And I understand that uh, many people that are watching um, are going to be concerned about. Um, if we worship the thing rather or g- give give thanks to the thing rather than the one who made the thing, then we are we are wasting our time. It might feel good in the moment, but in the long run, that God who made all these things we should be thankful for, we are going to stand in front of when we die. We are not going to get another chance, reincarnation, and another and another and another and another. No, when we die, we're done with our human life, this life, and then we stand before God And then we have to account for the life we gave. And if we have not been forgiven for all of the wrong things we know we have done, then we have to be punished for them. And this is why forgiveness through Jesus is so absolutely important. Wow, that's wonderful. Wonderful to hear you explain. And uh, you give a distinction very nicely between the experience, gratitude and the worship. And you emphasize that the, we should not be thankful to the creation, but to the creator, right? right? And yeah, and also I, I you beautifully um, talked about the experiences that, as Paul did, the experiences are based on the truth and truth is based on the reasons. That's how the experiences right. become truth, right? Yes, this is how we can distinguish whether the experiences are actually good, morally good, and they tell us the truth about the nature of the universe. Mm-hmm. And uh, by, we have to use our reason to do that. Wow, that's wonderful, wonderful. And uh, yeah, so since we have numerous religions like all over the world, including monotheism, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, monotheism, right. then polytheism, Hinduism is a polytheism, then atheism is there now and animism, and there are so many types of religion all over the world. And the followers of such religions claim that their religion is true. Right. Right. So the question is how to test your religion for truth. Okay. Well, I actually have a fairly simple test, and it's one that I have been using for a long, long time, many, many years in my Christian life, although I haven't thought about it this way, until my daughter, when she was eight years old, asked me a question. And what she asked was, uh, Papa, how do we, 
how do we know that God is true, is the way she put it. She's eight. Now, um, she had already been baptized, so she believed the things that we believed as a family. But she wanted to know now, not the what, but the why. Why do we think that what we believe is true? And now I have to explain this. I have to say something. I, I don't know what to... I'm thinking about it, basically, because even though I do things like this with you, with other adults, now I'm talking to my daughter and I have to say something that, that she can comprehend. And so as I thought of it, all of a sudden this idea came to mind, and I, and I said it to her. And I said, honey, the reason that we believe that God is true, in other words, are that God exists and that he's like the God that Christianity describes is because he's the best explanation for the way things are. It's because he's the best explanation for the way things are. Now, I want to just step out of religion for a moment and have your viewers think about things. You go through, we all go through our days trying to make sense of our world. We walk into the room and there's a mess. What happened? Who messed up the living room or something? I cleaned it last night, and now it's a mess. Well, it could be that the children came in there and ate a bunch of food and left the dishes. It could be that if you have cats like we do, they got in a fight and ran all over and knocked things over. How are you going to know which is which? Well, you look at the room, and you see what the room looks like, and you judge, you c conclude what might have caused it. What is the best explanation for the, what I just found. I mean, it's a very simple illustration, but we do this all the time. Okay, my computer is not working. Why not? Better check some things out. Well, somebody says, it's because it's not plugged in. Yes, it's plugged in. Look, I can see. That's not a good explanation. And then you start thinking, oh, here's a wire that's not connected properly, or my program needs to be updated or something. And then you realize, oh, I can see it says, please update. So now you have a reason that is the best explanation for why your computer is not working in there, and you you address the reason, and now you you're moving ahead. Okay, so I'm what I'm trying to describe is a very natural process that we go through in thinking um, that can be applied to this question. Okay, um, so you mentioned atheism. For example, most atheists, most atheists do not believe um, in anything that's not physical. So this physical world that we can experience with our senses, okay, is the only thing that's real. And so an atheist can say, well, I don't see God. I don't hear God. I don't taste him, touch him, smell him. So there is no God. Okay, they're limiting their experience to this physical world. Okay, I understand that. All right. Um, but there's something else that atheists say all the time. And they complain one reason they don't believe in God is because there is no evil. I'm sorry, is because of the problem of evil. All right. But what they're not realizing, what they don't think about, is that in order for there to be a problem of evil, that is, people who do bad things, there has to be a moral standard or scoring system for what's good and what's bad. Okay, now we all know this, you know, here it's, it's wrong to hurt people, 
but it's right to be kind to people, generally speaking. Okay, well, that's a standard. Most of us agree with that. But here's my question. Where is that standard? Well, it's not physical. It's not made up of molecules. And according to the atheist, if it's not made up of molecules or something physical, it's not real. So if you're going to be an atheist, there can't be non-physical things like morality in the sense we're talking about it. There can't be moral obligations like that. So therefore, if there are no standards that exist outside, then there can't be breaking the standard, which is evil. Now, some of your listeners may be following me, and this I think this is a little bit more of a complex notion. But it, if you if you are playing a game that has no rules, then you can't break the rules. It's got to have rules. So the atheist says we're in the game of life and people are breaking the rules. That's the problem of evil. And so I say, where are the rules? You're an atheist, right? Of course. You just believe in physical things, right? Where are the rules? Rules aren't physical things. All right. So for the atheist, there cannot be a problem of evil. Now, I'm not just pointing out something that is like a contradiction for atheists that they have to deal with. To me, this is one of the reasons I cannot be an atheist. Um, in other words, I can't even will myself to choose to be an atheist because I know better. There is something that everyone knows, and it doesn't matter when they lived or where they lived. So I can speak confidently to all of your listeners, even though we're half a world away. It's 10 and 11 in the morning almost here. For me, it's after midnight for you. All right. You, we all know this. Something is wrong with the world. Something is wrong with the world. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And most of us have this idea that the thing that's wrong with the world has something to do with the thing that's wrong with us. The world is broken, but we're broken too. So what is religion trying to do? Religion is trying to answer that question. What is wrong with the world and how do you fix it? So do other theologies or philosophies too, but and so they all have different answers. Okay. So what I'm doing right now is I'm just kind of going through a, a very simple pro- process of elimination. Atheism has one answer. Hinduism has an answer. Buddhism has an answer. And right on down the line, the major religions, Islam have, has a, an answer about that. Okay. But when you t- think about atheism, if everyone knows that something's wrong with the world, atheism has to say, Nope, there's nothing wrong with the world because there's no scoring system. It just is. It's just molecules clashing. It's not good. It's not bad. It's not right. It's not wrong. It's not moral. It's not immoral. It just is. That's what you get from atheism. But if I were to be an atheist, I'd have to say there is no evil in the world, and it's really obvious that the world is filled with evil, so atheism must be false. It's not the best explanation for the way things are. And incidentally, this is not tricky. This this isn't like, oh, that's so complicated. Sometimes it's a little hard to understand the concept. But the basic thing is very obvious. If you're an atheist, nothing can be wrong. Everything just is. But lots of things are wrong. 
So therefore, atheism must must not be correct. It isn't the best explanation. All right. Some form of theism where God sets a standard for everything that gets broken to create the problem of evil. That's a better explanation. So I'm sticking with Christian theism over atheism because atheism doesn't make sense of the way the world actually is. Okay, now I'm going to pause for a moment and make a point here, Rajat. And that is, um, notice that the way I'm making my assessment is I'm not going inside of me. I'm not thinking what I like. I'm not thinking about what I want to be the case. I'm not thinking about what I wish. I'm not thinking about what I imagine. I'm not looking in a, at anything inside of me. I'm looking at the world. I'm looking out there because I want an explanation of the whole thing, not just my feelings. I don't want to just go with my feelings. I want to know why is the world here? Why is there a problem of evil? What's wrong with me? How do I fix it? Very basic problems, but I'm not talking about what's inside of me. I'm talking about what's outside. Okay. And there's going to be an answer to that. Whether we can find it or not, that's another question. We're getting closer to the answer to that. It seems to me one answer is atheism, and that's clearly false because it doesn't match the world. Okay. So that's one step. <clears throat> but there's another step. So I can make, I'm just going to make a, another application of this idea. Um, Atheism thinks that that there is there's nothing immaterial that's real, only material things. There is a worldview that says material things are not real. Only an immaterial thing is real. Okay. Now I see your smile there because you know this is a very popular idea in India. Okay, that the world is Maya, it's an illusion. And there's only one thing that exists, and that is God in an impersonal fashion. Okay? Well, that's a respectable belief. But the question is, does it match the world? Because if there are no individual things, and all distinctions are Maya, this is like Vedantic Hinduism, as I understand it, and the only real thing is, is, is God, Brahman, Brahma, rather, in, in a in in a in an impersonal form, no distinctions. This is why they say Brahman, uh, Atman is Brahman, and Brahman is Atman. Okay, they're all the same. There's no differences. Then there cannot be, on that view, a difference between good and evil. Even the difference between good and evil is ultimately part of the illusion. Maya. Well, now you've got a totally different way of seeing the world than atheism. Atheist says there is no mind. It's all matter. And this view, monism, says there is no matter. It's all mind. And the mind is undivided. Well, they have the same problem atheism does. Because if there is no distinctions, no divisions, there can't be a distinction between what is good and what is evil. So therefore, there can't be good or evil. There is only one mind undivided. But wait a minute. We all know that must be false. 
because we all know that there is real evil in the world. And so for the same reason I reject atheism as not a good explanation of the world, I also reject form Eastern forms of monism, Hinduism. Not all Hinduism is exactly like that. There are variations, but this is the main thing. I reject that too. It can't be true. I know better. We all know better when we think about it. Evil is real. Now, guess what? Christianity acknowledges that evil is real. And it tells where it came from. It came from human beings disobeying God. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) And they're still doing it. That's why we still have evil. Okay, so uh, you ask me, how do you test a religion for truth? And what I'm demonstrating here as best I can is that there are that we, 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 one way to do that is to take our religious views and, and match them to the world. Because the religion is supposed to tell us why the world is the way it is and what the world is like outside of us. Okay, let's take a look. Well, wait, that doesn't work. Atheism doesn't work because it can't make sense of evil. But Eastern monism can't work either because that can't make sense of evil either. So I can, you know, just on those grounds, I can, I can conclude. Remember, we're using reason now because it keeps us safe. It tells us what's true. What's true. I can conclude those other two worldviews are not accurate. Now that leaves me with uh, some more, and there are more steps like this you can take. I know the universe came into existence sometime in the past. How long ago is a matter of debate, but every scientist now, for very good reason, believes the universe came into being. They call it the Big Bang. All right. Well, look at bangs don't bang themselves. My daughter said, if I bang my head on the table, then I'm one who banged it. So who banged the Big Bang? That's a good that's a good question. The Big Bang needs a banger. Okay. And so this is another argument against atheism. Common sense says that a person acted, not a physical person. A person acted to create the physical realm. So now what you have left, if that's reasonable, is you've got whatever the the details of the truth of the world are, the basis is an individual personal God. Okay, and that leaves you basically with three big religions. There's a couple of smaller ones, um, but three big religions that teach that Christianity, Judaism and Islam. So this is a way of trimming it down. OK, um, and there, it must be an individual. Any religion, <coughs> excuse me, that does not um, teach an individual God, then isn't adequate to explain the world as we know. So this, again, I'm just thinking about things. And then you could look at the person of Jesus and the history of Jesus and see if Jesus rose from the dead. Well, that changes everything. If a, if a man can raise himself from the dead in such a public fashion that not only do hundreds of people actually see them, but many of those people are willing to die a martyr's death based on the truth of what they saw. And by the way, we have many Muslims uh, who have become Christians 
who are in the same circumstance. They have a supernatural revelation from God, and they are so convinced it's true they're willing to become Christians in non-Christian, non-Christian or Muslim environments where their lives are at risk and sometimes lost. But that shows the, the, the strength of the conviction of the truth of what they're, uh, what they're, uh, what they're giving their life for. Now, of course, Muslims have died for Islam. We know that. Uh, famously, suicide bombers. This is why the rational part is also part of it. It's not just the conviction, the strength of the conviction. But remember that the early Christians, though, they were willing to die because they really believed that Jesus came out of the grave, and the grave was empty. There was no body there. And and their lives were transformed. So this becomes powerful evidence that Jesus is the God who made everything, which is what Christianity actually teaches. So there is a little tutorial from my perspective about how one can go about the process of assessing whether or not a religious view is true. That's it for this hour. We'll pick up the interview right where we left off next time. I'm Greg Kokel for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven. <laughs> 